From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, presbyopic intraocular lenses. We do have a certain plasticity in our brains to be able to sort of um, achieve these multiple states where we were able to look at images through these different patterns of aberration and the brain can still decipher the images even though they might be distorted in different ways. First this. As seen from here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource flattening the ophthalmic world. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast, already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. Today's podcast is part two of a two-part interview with Jay Peppos about presbyopic intraocular lenses. We pick up where we left off last time. Some of these patients may have more multifocal corneas that can then give them greater depth of field. They can, and also some of them may have spherical aberrations. Because remember, and I think that's a critical factor as to how the crystal lens probably works. I think during the accommodation, during the, the accommodative effort, the lens kind of changes shape and arches and you increase your spherical aberration. And remember, when you increase your spherical aberration, what happens is it's like stretching the conoid of sturm. So two things occur. First, you sort of stretch your conoid of sturm. And secondly, the optimal focal point shifts anteriorly so that the, the image is clearest anteriorly, which is really a shift you know, towards myopia. So I think those two things play a role. A lot of us have noticed that patients, for example, here's another example, patients who, who underwent laser vision correction years ago before we had wavefront-guided treatments, some patients who had high treatments in which we induced a lot of positive spherical aberration, some of them didn't go on to require reading glasses uh, as early, at the average age. Some of them were able to go you know, without readers until later in their 40s, probably for the same reason, we've probably induced enough spherical aberration to increase their, their depth of field. Now, we, we did that at the detriment of night vision. We induced night glare and halos and a myopic shift, uh, you know, as they, at nighttime because we induced a lot of spherical aberration, but they had some benefit as well. Now, at the same time that we're talking about this, there's a trend toward implanting newer monofocal intraocular lenses that seek to reduce higher-order aberrations, things like spherical aberration, by incorporating aspheric designs. The idea here is to increase the resolution and contrast sensitivity, but by making these lenses, in essence, more monofocal, by making these patients more monofocal, are we creating patients who are less likely to pseudo-accommodate? Well, I think I think you're right. I mean, and, and you're certainly doing the the opposite here. You're you're not expanding the the conoid of stern. You're doing the opposite. You're really having a lot more energy. You're if you if you look at the defocus curves, you know that's the real question. Are you are are you minimizing the defocus curves so that if the patient's emetropic, 
you know, right on, they're seeing beautifully, but if you held lenses of, you know, plus a half, minus half, plus one, minus one, would they see worse? Would they, would they have uh, no, no real uh, ability to, to tolerate any, any sense of defocus? I think what we're finding, however, is what we call the MTF, in other words, the modulation transfer function, the ability to see contrast is so elevated in these patients where you completely offset their corneal spherical aberration that you, you're, if you think about it in, 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 a, in a graph, your curve starts to go way up high even though the peak is, is narrowed. And you would actually cross at the same point as you would the lower curve, which is broader. Um, and, and so you're, you're, not, you're not minimizing your depth of field as much as you would think because you're making up for it with much increased contrast, image contrast. Otherwise, if you didn't, you're absolutely right. If your image contrast didn't increase, you would sacrifice completely depth of field. For those patients who do complain with presbyopic intraocular lenses, what are their typical complaints and how do they compare with those of patients with monofocal intraocular lenses? Well, I think that, you know, we know that all patients, you know, with every lens design have some complaints. I mean, if you look at the FDA studies, uh, there's no lens that's been, you know, that's gone through the FDA where patients had, you know, didn't have some sort of complaints. Some have photic complaints at night. Some have dysphotopsias, sometimes positive, sometimes negative. Some of those have to do with lens designs. Some of them have to do with more with lens materials. But, you know, typically with an accommodating lens like crystal lens, most of the complaints were in the mild to moderate rate in terms of nighttime glare or photic phenomena. Uh, there were far there were more complaints in the moderate to severe with multifocal lenses in terms of nighttime glare and and, um, and the FDA actually issued a warning about driving at night because in some patients there is a decrease in contrast sensitivity with the restore and resume lenses. And so the FDA actually put that on the labeling, you know, of, of those lenses and it, it, where it's not on the labeling of the, uh, you know, accommodating um, lenses. Some patients complained of waxy vision, you know, with the multifocals where they just didn't feel like the quality of their vision uh, was as good. Interestingly enough, in the patients that we studied where we implanted an accommodating lens in one eye and a multifocal in the other eye, their complaints were in between the two. In other words, they didn't have as few complaints as they did with a bilateral accommodating, but they didn't have as many complaints as they did with a bilateral multifocal. They were in between. Now, Jay, what do you do with that warning about nighttime driving? What do you think that it means, and how do you counsel these patients preoperatively? Well, I do you know, tell patients who I'm going to implant a multifocal in, and I predominantly impl- implant accommodating lenses, but there are patients where... Uh, on occasion, I might mix and match, you know, for example, patients who tells me that their favorite thing is to knit and they do that at eight, eight inches away or somewhere where I don't think I'm going to be able to achieve that focal point with a commenting lens and the patient, for whatever reason, doesn't want to have a, a monovision or a, or a mini monovision where I can enhance it. And I do tell those patients that they're going to get some haloing. They may what we call neurally adapt. In other words, they may notice it less as they, their brain kind of adapts to this new set of optics. But patients need to understand it. And I've had some patients tell me that, gee, you told me, doctor, that, you know, I would get halos, but you didn't tell me they'd be this big. 
or, or uh, and I would say, well, wait and see, you know, what happens, you know, most of the time in uh, six months, you know, you'll, they'll, they'll lessen, but they don't always lessen, and I don't think you can guarantee that, that, that they'll lessen. There have been some efforts made by um, what we call neural vision, t- you know, training. Some people have done um, trying to sort of um, reinforce the neural connections that al- that make they constitute vision. They've l- had patients look at computer screens and look at Gabor patches, which are alternating patches, patches almost like uh, contrast sensitivity uh, tests, to try to um, increase their ability to enhance contrast, basically. In other words, to make up for this loss of contrast that's inherent to multifocal lenses. But I do think it's important to warn patients that there could be issues with nighttime driving, and that can be problematic because you have to be careful when you tell patients. Uh, you, could, you know, you could ask a patient, do you drive at night? And they say, no, I do very little nighttime driving. But then you might find out that what they didn't tell you is that they drive home from work at 5 o'clock every day, and then in October it could be already dark. You know, you have to be clear in, in your conversation with patients. You mentioned neuroadaptation. What does that mean? And how is it different from just saying that the patient has gotten used to the symptoms that he has? Well, in, in a way, it is sort of getting used to it, but, it's, but I think it, it's a process that occurs. You know, we each, we each have our own set of, of aberrations that we're, you know, that we're used to. And we probably have different adaptive states. For example, those of us that are in presbyopic age, let's say wearing bifocals, your brain already has multiple adaptive states that it can almost instantly go to. For example, looking through the distance part of your glasses will have a different adaptive state than looking through the bifocal. And we do have a certain plasticity in our brains to be able to sort of um, achieve these multiple states where we we're able to look at images through these different patterns of aberration and the brain can still decipher the images even though they might be distorted in different ways. And when we implant the multifocal lens, we're radically changing the uh, aberration pattern, the eye's wave, compared to what it was preoperatively. It could take some months before your brain gets used to this new pattern, and that's the, that's the neuroadaptation. We know a lot because of adaptive optics testing. You know, there are instruments that basically can, um, you can basically change someone's higher-order aberrations through these deformable mirrors. And interestingly enough, when you take someone's pattern and just rotate it, this, these are studies that were done at the University of Rochester by Dave Williams Group and Pablo Artal, if you just rotate the, their, their aberrations, they will, so you're not increasing it, you're just rotating it in a different pattern, people will always choose the pattern that they're used to as being the most favorable, even though you're not adding to the aberrations of their eye. To what extent does the topography of the cornea influence your choice of intraocular lens? Well, I think that topography is critical, and I think that it is one area that we need to address, you know, more and more as as cataract surgeons. I think we have to preoperatively assess the patient, both as if we're a LASIK surgeon and a cataract surgeon at the same time as we're doing the preoperative um, testing, because the same factors are going to be playing a role in LASIK and, and, and in refractive cataract surgery. If you have a patient who has a very asymmetric topography, not keratoconus, let's say, but 
just some corneal asymmetry, the optical effect of that asymmetry is going to be coma. And now you're going to introduce that into the eye. If you do ray tracing, now you introduce a multifocal lens. Now you're going to have coma on top of the loss of contrast because of the uh, multifocality in your ear. And, and so you may, you may reach a point where you're below the eye's threshold, really, to, to have good image quality. And, and also, we know that even if you wanted to do um, a laser treatment afterwards to try to, let's say there's any, any residual refractive error, if you put a refractive lens in, the quality of wavefront measurements is, is, is not optimal and, and sometimes not even interpretable after zonal refractive lens implantation. So you may not be able to do a wavefront guided treatment because there's just not, you don't have good fidelity of the measurement itself. I lean more towards an accommodating lens in a patient like that. And also, those are the kind of patients you need to counsel preoperatively and say, gee, you know, I'm seeing this unusual topography preoperatively. It is possible that this could impact the quality of your vision after surgery, and it, this may not be something that we're able to surgically deal with. I, I wouldn't uh, discard the possibility that a patient might need to use a gas permal contact lens, for example, to offset that asymmetry. They would still get the benefit of a, a presbyopia correcting lens, but the patient would have to get would have to realize preoperatively that they have another problem, a corneal problem, in addition to their cataract, and they may not be glasses free. They may still need to 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 do something about it. So I think these are important questions. I I, I I've had, for example, when when these lenses first came out, I had a referral of a patient from another physician who didn't do any laser surgery, and he implanted uh, a restore lens and then sent the patient to me for the laser vision correction. And he had never done a topography, and I had the misfortune of having explained to that patient that they had keratoconus. And so it's really important, you know, to look at the topography, you know, pre-op. Jay, what do you see coming down the pike in the next, let's say, five to ten years? Well, I think, you know, this is the most exciting time. Uh, I think we're going to see a whole host of different accommodative lens designs I think we're going to see some changes in multifocal lenses uh, as well. I think that we'll probably have more than one type of aspheric lens to choose from, perhaps to maybe try to fine-tune, you know, look at the corneal aberrations, offset it better, not base, base the decision on averages. I think we're going to see changes. We're going to have choices. Uh, I call it the pizza lens. It's like ordering a pizza. You'll have various toppings. We'll be able to get lenses of different toricity. You know, we'll get toric multifocals. We'll get toric accommodating lenses. We'll have different degrees of asphericity. Uh, and you'll be able to mix and match these. But I think most importantly, we're going to see completely different lens designs for accommodating lenses. And I think eventually we'll go towards accommodating lenses becoming the what I consider the mainstream and the reason is that the quality of vision is just better. We're not sacrificing quality of vision, and we're still getting both near and far. There's some ingenious lens designs that are being looked at by st- some startup companies. Uh, we have Visugen, for example, which is a dual optic lens, a plus 32 optic on the front, a minus optic on the back. They are implanted in the capsule bag. 
There are UBM studies showing, you know, uh, true accommodation, meaning the lenses are changing shape, uh, changing position. If you have a plus 32 lens on the front end, it doesn't take much movement of a plus 32 lens to get a, a, a pretty substantial um, refractive effect. You can get easily three diopters uh, of, of change with, with, with that kind of, um, with a small movement of that of a plus 32 diopter lens. So it's a very interesting lens design. Of course, those lenses are still going to be dependent upon uncertainty in terms of capsular size, capsular fibrosis. You know, when you implant a lens into a patient, studies are showing that the capsular bag is about 11 millimeters when you take the cataract out in diameter, maybe 11 and a half millimeters in Asians. But within three to six months, the capsular bag contracts to about nine millimeters in diameter, which interestingly enough is the same diameter as the crystalline lens. So, you know, these kind of post-operative changes could, be, could play a role in accommodative lenses. There's um, a, a, a lens um, that's being developed by a company called PowerVision called the Fluid, lens, uh, Fluid Vision Lens, which is another ingenious lens design. This lens has, is filled with fluid, silicone uh, fluid, which has the same refractive index, and it has these haptics, which are fluid-filled, and the lens changes shape as the capsule bag contracts. It, it compresses these fluid-filled haptics. The fluid then comes to the center of the lens, and the lens changes shape and curvature, thereby increasing its accommodative function. There's another lens um, by a company um, called, um, which is based in Israel called New Lens, which is a sulcus-placed lens. You actually collapse the capsular bag, and the capsular bag zonular diaphragm pushes the posterior aspect of this lens, uh, which is a gel, through a, um, a fixed uh, aperture, and the gel bulges forward, changing again its curvature. And this has already been implanted in, in, in monkeys and also in some blind patients. So we're slowly moving towards these new uh, ingenious lens designs. We're moving closer to Faco Ursatz, finally. Uh, Nishi did some very interesting work with um, um, filling the, the capsular bag with some polymers, and um, he's developed um, some uh, lenses that can be um, placed just basically to close the front and posterior surface of the, of, of the uh, capsulotomies that are required. Uh, in, in doing this type of surgery. He just presented that and was given an award at the most recent ESCRS. So I think, I think we're just at the beginning. This is just like the very first lens implants, uh, you know, and, and, and we've gone so far, you know, uh, since lenses were first described. I mean, you think about where we've gone since, since Ridley, and uh, these are the very first lenses, and we're going to see tremendous changes in the, in the next uh, five to ten years. Jay, what do you do in your own practice now? How, how do you approach presbyopic IOLs? Well, I think I have become very sensitive to the issue of quality of vision, I think for a variety of reasons. I mean, one is um, we have a population of patients that are living longer and longer. I can't tell for sure who are going to develop age-related problems, who's going to develop macular degeneration in five years or ten, who's going to develop glaucoma, Who's going to get diabetes and have some macular change? And so I, I would like to avoid 
decreasing someone's contrast by implanting a multifocal lens that will decrease their contrast, not knowing what their ability to, uh, to, to see contrast will be in the future. We know that as you age, your contrast sensitivity function declines naturally. So I, my preference is to implant an accommodating lens. I implant, I, I implant it in the dominant eye first. I target emetropia. Most patients uh, with the crystal lens, I use the crystal lens HD. Most patients achieve good distance vision. I'm very particular in correcting their corneal astigmatism at the same time. They get good intermediate vision, and they get reasonable reading vision. But, and then at a week, I ask them to grade those three things. In a sense, I tell them it's like filling out a report card. I want a report card grade on distance, intermediate, and near. If they tell me that they are happy with distance and happy with intermediate, but they wish they had more near, then I'll discuss with them the option of a little monovision, what I call mini monovision, maybe targeting a half a diopter or minus three quarters of a diopter in the non-dominant eye, which I'll do second. And um, I'll, I'll discuss what that means, perhaps training a line or two at distance with monocularly for a line or two of near, but with both eyes together, most patients will easily fuse. Now, if they tell me that what their real goal is is to see at 12 inches away and they don't want to tolerate monovision, they, they don't like it, they tell me they've tried that in the past with contacts and didn't like it, they don't like the, the loss of stereopsis, then I'll discuss implanting a multifocal, usually restore, a spheric restore in the non-dominant eye because I think I can achieve a closer near point. But you do have to achieve excellent distance, at least in one eye, because it's, in, patients will not be happy unless they achieve good distance vision um, with this kind of surgery. They expect distance vision is part of it. They, you know, they think, and rightly so, the added benefit of these lenses is the improved near and intermediate. They're, they're expecting distance. Jay Peppos, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Jay Peppos is clinical professor of ophthalmology at Washington University in St. Louis and director of the Peppos Vision Institute in Chesterfield, Missouri. His paper, Maximizing Satisfaction with Presbyopia-Correcting Intraocular Lenses, The Missing Links, appears in the November 2008 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Pepos or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.